And now, from the news desk, that is the news desk, at IBGR.news, this is William Eastman with your report. Now, depending upon where you are on the planet, this is either the Sunday evening report, coming to you at 6.30 in the evening, New York time, if you're in Africa, Europe, United Kingdom, or North America. However, this broadcast is really aimed at our colleagues over in Australia, New Zealand, and the Indian subcontinent. And for all of you, it is not Sunday night. It is Monday morning, and it's time to start the workday. Okay, so let's go to the website, ibgr.network. That is ibgr. Oh, excuse me, ibgr.news. I have too many networks to work. And if you go to ibgr.news, let me take you through, through a couple of things here. Also quite interesting is I got a little story to tell you as we start. So let me start with what's obvious here. The number one global business talk and news network on the internet. Now it doesn't say on the internet, but it's assumed because you're on a web page. And the reason that we say that is because when we looked at the web rankings of everybody else who's trying to do what we're doing, and it's not many, so it's not like we beat everybody. We're number one in web ranking. Below that, you'll see the navigation bar. That will take you any place you want to go into the IBGR.network, with the exception of subscription. And so IBGR.news, IBGR.network, what's the difference here? Well, we're one bills on the other. See, the news function is about information. You know, if you look at health, you are what you eat, you are what uh, you put into your body, eat, drink, drugs, etc. And I'm not talking about illicit drugs, I'm talking about Tylenol and all the other things you take. Well, your business decision-making is exactly the same thing. It is a function of what data you consume, what information you have. And so we build a foundation by providing information that we believe is relevant to you so that when we get into the network and we are doing our 24 by 7 radio shows and we're talking about insights and tools, they build upon the things that we establish here. Now this happens twice a day, Monday to Friday, in one hour um, in the morning and one hour in the evening. And again, depending upon where you are, we start the day off with uh, Startup Radio or StartupRad.io, bringing you information on the tech startup scene in Europe. And then we come back with more generalized information. And really, when we started this, we thought we, what we were going to do is talk about hot current news. And the reality of it is we're doing less of that. And, and by the way, I'm going where the algorithm takes us, and I'll talk about that in a second. And really what we're talking about is trends that are out there in the marketplace that we believe that you probably should be paying more attention to. Or let me put it this way. If we bring it to your attention, then perhaps you'll pay more attention to it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you're reading. I don't know what you're consuming. But that's the goal that we got here. Now, as you go below the navigation bar, you'll see our broadcast schedule. Our four reference cities for our news broadcast are Sydney, Mumbai, Greenwich, and New York. So depending upon where you are around the world, anchor your times there, and we have both of those shows. Startup Radio is, uh, StartupRad.io is on at the top of the hour, and at the bottom of the hour, we come in, and this happens twice every 24 hours. Okay, so now let's get on down, and let me tell you a funny story here as we get into this. Apparently, I didn't refresh my screen because I prepared, I curated the list, I looked at the shows and said, here's what we're going to cover today. And then when I opened the screen up, 
it's none of the shows I did. So what we're going to do this, we're going to do it together. So, okay, let's go. I'm going to try to focus on Australia and um, India is the primary marketplaces, but I'm also going to go where there's good stories. So the first one is four key points of your entrepreneurial capital to consolidate your business. It is the very first panel. It is by Entrepreneur Magazine. If you please click that, let's explore this together. And I pretty much trust these guys. They're pretty good. They write really good information, okay? So it's a, it's a good idea. Uh, a good idea is not enough to build a success. All right, let's do that again. A good idea is not enough to build a successful startup or company. In addition to a lot of discipline and passion, entrepreneurs require money to capitalize on and make those ideas possible. On many occasions, traditional investment alternatives are not always willing to boost businesses that are just being formed. No kidding. That is a statement of the obvious. However, the venture capital industry has established itself as a viable solution for the generation and continuity of business. Uh, the in incursion of investing in venture capital funds has allowed more and more successful stories for small business owners. Now, in this particular case, it is going into the Latin American market. Okay, so let's just hit on a couple things. Uh, here's a bullet here. To know more startups uh, of this type a founder get 151% more income. Now, all right, so what do they mean by that? So let's take a look at it, all right? In, and so they're using Mexico as an example, but I think this, is, this goes across the world. There are at least 126 venture capital investment firms of which 104 operate mainly with money from Mexican investors, okay? And however, only 581 companies are supported by venture capital funds, of which 50, 455 continue to operate five years after their foundation, which implies a survival rate of 78%. Now, let's stop there. That is a remarkable set of numbers because if you look at it, five years, if, if, if you're looking at just small business in general, and let's say no access to investment funding like that, uh, it's almost 100 go out of business in five years. Now, of course, that's not true So, uh, because there are some that stay, but the, but the numbers are against you. In fact, the mean the mean amount of time, if not the average, but the mean time the small businesses go under is three years. Now, three years and the mean investment by the owner is $55,000 USD. And so after three years of all the lost income they would have got from someplace else, plus the money they sunk into the business that they lost, which they're not going to get back, you can see how devastating it is. And what this, what this says to you is that that access to capital early on is critical because a lot of the companies that have failed at, at the mean of three or in the general average at five are companies that could have made it if, they, in fact, they had capital. All right, so let's take a look at this. Number one is a vehicle to generate innovation. Now. I disagree with what they're doing here, and let me put up my own spin on it. Uh, I agree with what they're trying to do, okay? But the use of innovation, if you look at it, and I've spent a lot of time, I've got a background in entrepreneurial capitalism, not the big company capitalism, not state capitalism, fascism, none of that. I'm talking about small business capitalism. And small business capitalism is not innovation. It's disruption, which means it's invention. You see, large companies are the ones where you invest in innovation because they have all this embedded infrastructure, all this embedded cost. And so most large corporations will not 
basically throw away everything they, they have and start over with new product lines, new service lines. What they'll do is they'll look at it and say, hey, we've got to figure out how to innovate the current stuff that we have to take on the competitors that we picked up on the market. On the other hand, if this was to read vehicle to generate invention, then you're dead on because what they're looking for, and it's the use the word uh, uh, disruptors, venture capital funds are a generator of disruptive uh, within startups or disruption as they seek to improve processes, operate, uh, operational capacities and models. But you see, fundamentally, a startup company is not a business. If you're in the very early stages of your business, you're an experiment because until you prove the business idea, whatever it is that you said, you know, if we do X, if we provide this type of value to this group of people at this price point is that they will reciprocate not only in the initial relationship of buying, but that we are in a market where we're going to be able to grow that. And so that is really what you are looking at as a startup business. So the idea that you're a business, I don't think so. I think really what you are is you're setting up an experiment and you're trying to figure out how to get the market as quickly as you can, spending the least amount of money that you can, and getting successful as quickly as you can. Once you prove the business idea, now you're saying, okay, let's build the infrastructure around this. And this is something that I, I came to over the last couple of years. I've got five startups under my belt myself, plus the companies that I've helped grow. And one of the things that always struck me is when we were looking at what core processes to building companies, we didn't build really any of the big stuff. I mean, it was more like, let's, let's get the, the CRM and the customer system in place. Let's get the financial systems in place. That's kind of it. It's not until the company starts to grow where you go, okay, let's start looking at processes. Okay, number two is they bet on disruptive projects. Now, whether you go get capital or not, understand what they're saying. These people are not going to throw good money at bad ideas or bad companies. They're only going to pick the winners. And even in that industry, even in that industry, only about 10 to 20%, depending upon how good the venture capital uh, organization is, which means do they give you money and back out or do they stay involved? Not so much to tell you what to do, but to train, coach, and mentor you. Uh, and so betting on disruptive projects is exactly what you're doing. If you are, if you are a startup company, it's impossible to innovate on something that other people have done. Now, I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying that's a longer haul. And that's going to take more time because where are you? You're doing battle with the big guys in their battlefield, in their ocean, in their gulf. What you want to do is you want to be fighting, a, you want to be starting a war where you don't have any enemies yet. And so what are your disruptive uh, projects? What are you going to do that's going to disrupt the market and not innovate? Okay. Um, number three, they adopt the win-win model. Okay. And so in their particular case, they come in to try to help. But I want to, expend a, I want to expand that win-win model to what we've learned here starting the radio station. We're a startup. You're looking at a company that, well, really, we weren't a business. You were looking at an experiment 
that has been working on justifying the business idea that has begun the scale up, the second part of the process, and that is to scale up the company because part of that is the management of cash flow. So the win-win model is really one of these in that maybe what you ought to be considering is outsourcing a lot of things that are not core to the business, but doing it in a way that the people that you're outsourced to win as well as you win. Right? So it's a win-win view of, I would, I would say, we have several companies we work with right now that we've outsourced to different parts of the business that if you were to look at their website and look at their companies, you would say, well, they're competitors. Well, they could have been. They're not now. Because, and why? Because we approach them about partnership-type deals where we're going to help them achieve what they seek to achieve, and they're going to help us. And the trade-off here is... We do well what they don't. They do well what we don't, okay? Beyond financing is create value, and of course, that's always the case. And really what this is talking about here is that it's looking at the, the entire value of the company. How, what are you doing? All right, you know, when you start making money and you have retained earnings, what are you doing with the retained earnings? Are you basically just paying dividends out to the owners? Which is a good thing to do because if they put that money in there, you have to reward them somehow. But how much of that money is being really reinvested into the business to get growth? So I'm not going to say that I totally disagree with the article, but I just have kind of my own spin on this. Okay. All right. So now let's go down to the second uh, panel. And what we have here is Kenyans lead the world in peer-to-peer -peer crypto trade. Africa takes top spots. And this article is by Star, and it's, what is this? Oh, it's an advertisement, okay? However, it is true, and I know it's true, even though I haven't read it till I'm doing it right here, because again, what would happen is the uh, <laughs> my newspaper refreshed on me between the time I curated and built today's show and when I came on the air. I can't talk about any of those and say, well, now go to this page here, because I don't have those notes. Now, the reason I say this is that when you look at what's going on around around the world, and then let's focus on Africa. Africa is like running about number five in the world in uh, technology investments. And in that within Africa, those technology investments are almost, almost all going to uh, fintech, financial transaction services. Some of it is going into agritech in terms of uh, modernizing agriculture, but th this is the sexy stuff, and this is what's going to produce the greatest return. The agriculture actually may be a better investment long-term for Africa, but on the other hand, it's not, the venture capitalists are not anti to what's good for, say, the, the continent or for the countries, but they represent investors too, so they've got, they've got a little different mindset here. And so what has happened is that a battle is shaping up that's going to go on around the world, and the initial shots of the battle or the war are going to be fought in Africa and in India, and perhaps some places in Southeast Asia. But right now, these are the ones that are getting all the uh, traffic. I can't tell you how many stories I cover on this topic. Here's the battle. Is the future of money government money or private money? See, we're already doing, when we talk about cryptocurrency, we're already talking about private money. And so if you take crypto and fintech and, and blockchain and kind of put that all together, and to some people, they're the same thing. I kind of split them into three areas. But however you want to look at it is if you put those things together, you're going to have money in your digital wallet 
wallet that the government didn't create, that doesn't control, doesn't know how much you have, doesn't know how you transact back and forth. There is no, there is no audit trail to really follow. And so they're totally out of the loop. And it's happening, if you look at Africa, it's happening in India because the banking system, the central bank, every country has a central bank, it's, it's in some way controlled by the government. And so it is not easy to bank in those countries. The same thing is, gonna, is happening in Europe uh, with the European Central Bank. Same thing happened in the United States with the Fed. And so if people going, look, if you're going to print $10 trillion and dump it in the economy, you're destroying the value of the money. Maybe the smart move for me is to use new money. Okay, so here, Kenyans are trading cryptocurrencies directly with each other, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, and peer-to-peer -peer transactions more than any place else in the world. And the reason for it is the banking system doesn't work. And I don't know if they got the statistic here, but it was something like 40% of, uh, of Kenyans don't have bank accounts. So everything has been in the past a cash transaction. Well, that works good if you're going down to the market, but if you're dealing with, if you're in um, Kenya and you're trying to sell products or services to India, uh, you can't walk over and hand cash or they can't come over and hand cash to you. All right, residents of other ca African countries are jumping at the opportunity to, to cushion remittances and cross-border businesses from costly transfer fees and the risk of weakening currencies. So yeah, I, anticipa I anticipated the bullet, but that's not because I'm smart. It's because I've been following this for the last three months. All right, so also ranked highly in this segment are Togo at second, Tanzania at four, and Ghana at 10. Now, it's interesting is that uh, Nigerians are not on the list because the goal in Nigeria is to become the, the portal for Africa to trade with the rest of the world when it comes to cryptocurrency. The trend is believed to have partially influenced by the danger of weakening African currencies due to the resurgence of the deadly virus in the form of Delta variant, which has jolted efforts to reopen economies. Well, we won't get into the whole COVID thing because it, that's uh, a waste of our time. All right, many emerging markets face a significant uh, currency devaluation driving residents to buy cryptocurrency on P2P platforms, people-to-people -people or peer-to-peer, -peer, in order to preserve their savings, according to the report. Kenya's uh, currency has depreciated by 6.3% against the U.S. dollar since January, you know, according to the Central Bank of Kenya. Now, if it's, <laughs> if it's depreciated against the U.S. dollar, you have the double whammy of the dollars being depreciated. And just to give you context of what I just said before we take a look at one more story, because here's what happens when I, I don't have my notes, I'm not as concise on these articles, is that the United States has a gross domestic product of about $20 trillion a year. The world is at about, was at about 70. So the United States made up about, oh, what would be a third, would be 60. So the United States made up uh, a makes up about 31%, I believe, of the total GDP of planet Earth. 20 trillion, that's a huge number. Right now, with the bills that passed Congress, plus what happened last year, the United States has printed $10 trillion into its economy, and basically 50% of the gross domestic product in the United States has been, has been sent out and flooded as a money supply as a way of dealing with the issue. And of course, that's depreciating the United States dollar. So if your money is depreciating against the dollar, then things are really not good where you're at. 
All right, one more story I can I can jam in here. Let me see if I got an Aussie story here. Uh, boom, 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 boom. I'm scrolling down, scrolling down. Uh, okay, let's go here since it's in the theme. And uh, it's three panels down. It says, how long will the U.S. dollar dominance last? Okay, and what that means is that for all of you that are not econ people, and by the way, this is an article from Zero Hedge, one of my favorite sources of information. These guys are good. And um, the, the beauty of Zero Hedge is that could be, they could have five stories on the same issue and the stories don't agree with each other, which gives you the ability to read that and go, whoa, 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 what's going on here? All right. 301 AD was a big year for the Roman Empire. That was the year that amid spiraling inflation, Emperor Diocesan issued his uh, edict on maximum prices, essentially bringing prices of just about everything across the Roman Empire. Basically what they did is they put uh, price controls on everything. And I, it didn't say they did it on wages, but my guess is they would have had to do that as well. <coughs> All right, so let's, let's take this a little further. These guys are always good for this. All right, the price of wheat, a day's labor wages, the court of an olive oil, transportation rates, everything was established by the emperor's edict and enforced under the penalty of death. Uh, Diocletian's edict infamously didn't work, and the empire plunged into more severe inflation. Now, the reason he's saying that story is that at the time, there was nobody getting together and saying, okay, you know, Rome has the world's reserve currency, which in a way it did because that's what was being traded. The United States today is the world's reserve currency. Now, what does that mean? Well, at the end of World War II, there, there was a meeting in 1944, uh, and there's subsequent meetings after that, but in 1944, there was a meeting in Brenton Woods in New Hampshire in the United States. And it was agreement since the United States had the only economy that was not flat on its backside because of World War II, that the dollar would become the reserve currency, that everybody would pay their money to the U.S. because it was the, uh, it was the most solid money. And at the time, that was fairly true. Now, what it also meant is that when, company, when countries would transact between them, they would use the reserve currency, the United States dollar. So if uh, Great Britain was trading with France, they didn't trade in pounds or they didn't trade in francs, they traded in dollars. If the, if the Soviet Union was trading with the United States, the Soviet Union couldn't use rubles, it had to use dollars in order to do the transaction. And so that's the power of the reserve currency because what that allows you to do is that when you start when you start printing excess money, um, and if that money is confined to the borders of your country, it doesn't take too long before the effects of that decision making are going to kill you as a nation. But if it's the reserve currency, you can spread your inflation around the world. Now, you know it it's not fair to the other countries. But that's what happens. And so now what you have is the United States is spreading its inflation to everybody because that $10 trillion added to the economy is going to go around the world. How is that going to go around the world? 
Europeans don't have a great European market. Europeans, you know, basically, they export. They make their money from exporting. Certainly, that's true of China. Certainly, that's true of Japan. Certainly, that's true of South Korea. And that's true of a lot of countries in Africa and India, is that their domestic markets don't produce enough for their economies to do well, so they've got to export to the United States. Well, the United States is takes all that in and pays you with inflated dollars. And so now what's happened is the money that we pay you, those dollars are worthless, so effectively you're getting ripped off. You're getting ripped off for the stuff that we are buying from you. Well, I can tell you right now that if the dollar goes off as the reserve currency, and quite frankly, it would be terrible for the United States for that to happen. And on the other hand, we deserve it because of the way that we've treated treated this you know valuable resource here because right now we don't deserve to be the reserve currency is that it will throw the United States in um, forever so for example there's a chart on the page there it's a pretty good one it says and uh, let me check the time here before because I, I want to get this in before I run out of time because I really like it in a period of time between 1400 and say 1500 the world's reserve currency was Portugal because of the gold they had the most money so they had the most they could put out there from the 15 from the late 1500s to the middle of the 1600s Spain was the world's reserve uh, currency why because Spain was the richest country and everybody was doing business in doubloons around the year 1700 the Netherlands became that because why because even though banking, the, the, the really the art of banking started in Florence at the beginning of the Renaissance, it was the Dutch, the Netherlands, who understood that. And so the world's first great bankers were the Dutch. Um, also, that they, they were the first stock market. And so for a while, that was the reserve currency of the world. Then you had France, okay? And from about the late early 1700s to late 1700s, because Louis the, uh, um, oh, this is after Louis, sorry, uh, that France had the dominant economy. And then you had from the loss of France up until uh, right after World War II, right after World War II is uh, what you had. And I'm being told here, my mic is on. Of course my mic is on. Um, and so from World War II, what you had is that uh, Great Britain, I mean, World War One, and now the United States. So nothing is permitted here. And so what's going to happen is that it is decidedly difficult for any country to do this because what happens is they they take advantage of the fact that they're the reserve currency and it's bad news. Uh, in my remaining minute, what I'll say is that more than likely what that means is that is that there will be the replacement will be a bundle of uh, currencies and perhaps a bundle of minerals, gold, rare earths, but it's going to be a change, and it's going to have a devastating impact on the United States uh, long-term. Short-term, it'll have a devastating impact, impact around the world, but perhaps the world will turn out better because of it. Okay, I'm out, I'm out there at uh, the end of my time. And so, hey, thanks for staying with me. I did uh, three stories rather than five, and I read them as you read them. So you're listening to IBGR.News, IBGR.News. My name is William Eastman, coming live to you from the news desk just outside of beautiful downtown Richmond, Virginia, from our North American studios. Make sure you hang around. We're starting our broadcast day right now in Australia, and uh, I will be back in 11 and a half hours to bring you the next set of news. And uh, this time, I'll make sure it's refreshed. You take care. Have a great business day.